Well, my very first job out of high school uh, was a hotel cleaner. Uh, I didn't really want to go to uni when I first left school. Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I thought I'll get a job. Uh, my dad knew someone in, that owned a, hotel, a motel that was looking for uh, an assistant cleaner. So I don't know if you know this, but cleaners can have assistants too. Uh, so I was an assistant cleaner, and my job was pretty simple. I, I would come into rooms, uh, and I would essentially remove everything that was dirty. So sheets, towels, uh, rubbish. I'd take everything out of the room, and I'd take it down to get washed, while the cleaners would come in and scrub the surfaces and, and replace it with uh, clean linen and towels, etc. Uh, and it was a tough job in many ways. I normally would be getting up uh, you know, at 5 a.m., which doesn't sound that late for those of you commuting to the city, but my commute was five minutes. I was getting up at 5 a.m. for a five-minute commute uh, to do breakfast and then start cleaning. It was hard work, but it's not a job that I necessarily would reflect on as a job that I was proud of. Uh, not because the job itself was in somehow demeaning. I think work is work, and it doesn't matter what function you do it in. Uh, the reason why I don't think I was that proud of the job was because it was a job where I did the bare minimum and then I got out. I'd do what I had to do for the day and then I was gone. And there's actually not really anything wrong with that in, in the scheme of, of earthly employment. When you are hired as someone to work for someone, you have expectations upon you and once you fulfil those expectations, you should be allowed to take your leave and finish your day. Uh, some of those expectations will be that you're expected to work for a certain amount of hours, which is a little different. Uh, and the reality is that for most of us, our jobs are not necessarily things where we go on above and beyond, because our jobs are things where we just have to do what we have to do. And there's another word that's used for that kind of thing, and that word is duty. Uh, duty, I think today, is very romanticised. It's seen as this great and wondrous thing to be a, a dutiful person. But really, duty is doing what you're meant to do. Doing the bare minimum is to fulfil your duty. But in the grand scheme of the world, in the grand scheme of faith and Jesus, we have to question ourselves, is doing our duty enough? Is doing what we have to do enough in the eyes of God? Uh, as our reading begins at Luke chapter 17, Jesus has, at this point, been talking with the disciples. Uh, and in chapter 16, the previous chapter before our reading, uh, we see the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus has made it clear that the Pharisees have missed the point of what salvation is. And then he turns to the disciples. And I think in these passages he instructs them both on what it is to be a dutiful Christian and ultimately why that isn't enough. And so he says these words from uh, verses 1 to 3. And his first instruction really is to guard themselves with these words. Jesus says to his disciples, reading at verse 1, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone whom, through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourself. It's an interesting transition. And it makes it clear that Jesus is probably referring to the Pharisees in this discussion with the disciples. Uh, he's no, the Pharisees were known for uh, people who mistaught, who twisted the word of God to suit their needs. And so Jesus, after telling them that essentially they're facing condemnation for rejecting him, the son of God, the one who, the Moses, uh, who Moses and the prophets speak about, then turns to the disciples and says, you will hear things that cause you to stumble. And it's, it's important to note that the, the phrasing here, cause people to stumble... Uh, is not 
discussing, just discussing our earthly temptations like you might see in the book of James or in the epistles where, where the world tempts us. The temptation here is coming from one who teaches about God in an unworthy manner and draws people away from the truth in that teaching. It's almost, about, it's almost an attack from within, from people who claim to be part of the kingdom of God and yet teach a message that is contrary to what it says. And the, there's a, a, quite a serious statement that Jesus makes. He says it would be better for those people who t- misteach the word of God to have a millstone tied around their neck and to drown. Uh, now, a millstone is a giant wheel made of concrete in which you would put the wheat at the bottom of the wheel and you would roll the wheel back and forth over it so that your wheat would get crushed and become into essentially flour. It's not something that you could easily uh, carry. It's not something you could easily swim on your back in water. It's something that assures you would drown, you would die a horrible death. And yet Jesus makes it clear that this this, uh, millstone, this drowning, this suffering is preferable to one who would mislead the people of God and cause them to stumble. And the point Jesus is trying to make is simple. To misrepresent the word of God is a serious offence. To modify it, to change it, to cause people to no longer believe the truth of God but something else is dangerous. There are many people in this world who uh, call themselves people of God and with the best of intentions have gone down a path and misrepresented who God is and what God cares about. At the same time, there's people who uh, maybe uh, accurately represent the word of God and what it says, but treat it in such anger and hostility towards others that they actually don't represent God to the people around them. Uh, I spend a lot of time on, on YouTube in, in, my, in my free time, not when I'm working. Uh, but one of the things I love to do is I love to, uh, there's a few preachers that I love to listen to on YouTube, and it's been wonderful in the last two years, the uh, transition of Christian media onto the platform itself. But one of the interesting things is that with all that really positive Christian media, there's also been other media of those claiming to be faith. And I, I've seen messages of people who, uh, they refer to themselves as, as progressive Christians, and I don't like the word progressive because I think in, in today's culture and in today's culture wars, there's a hostility in using that word, but it's a word I'm going to use anyway because it's, it's what they choose to call themselves. And they essentially undermine uh, the word of God with the hope that people will find it more appealing. They take out the confronting and difficult bits and they make excuses for it as though it's no longer the case or that God is no longer like that or that the Old Testament God isn't the same as the Jesus God. You know, we spent the last uh, term looking at Deuteronomy, and if you were paying attention, there's some pretty full-on stuff in there, but we hopefully directed you to see how it's the same God in the Old Testament that is brought about in Jesus. And on the other end, there's people that are, uh, who, who factually rep- quote Scripture, but use it as a form of power, as a way to gain influence and hurt others. And we can fall into either of those camps when we begin to ignore the truth of the word of God. The most important thing that I believe a Christian can do for their faith is to pray. It's the most important thing that you can do. The second most important thing I believe that you can do for your faith is to read the word of God. 
Jesus instructs the disciples both to not participate in this teaching and to protect themselves against it. And I feel the best way for a Christian to protect themselves is to know what it says. To know that when someone quotes a verse, that there are other verses that surround that verse, that put that verse in a very different context. There is power in the word of God, a way to protect yourselves, a way to guard yourself. Jesus then uh, moves, moves on from the, the temptation of the uh, falling into the false teachings, uh, and then he moves on to, to the idea of the need for us to restore ourselves to one another. And he says that halfway through, beginning or midway through verse 3, he says, If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive. And this might seem like an arbitrary transition, almost like a proverbial style of teaching where Jesus is just moving from one to the next. But I actually think he's still dwelling on the idea of false teachings, particularly in the false teachings of the prophets. Uh, Pharisees, not the prophets, we like the prophets. In the teachings of the Pharisees. They had become, if you pay attention to Jesus' ministry, it's, they are outraged at the people that Jesus would dare be seen to associate with. Tax collectors, sinners, they, they provide no opportunity, no, uh, no avenue for these people to be redeemed in their society, for these people to be redeemed in the eyes of, of what they believe God is. And I think Jesus confronts that false teaching and c- confronts that nature of being tempted to fall into it by instructing the disciples specifically to forgive over and over and over again. But what's, what I find so fascinating about this is it's not just, all right, go and forgive. No, it's, it's rebuke and then receive repentance and then forgive. The idea of rebuking in this passage is heavily tied to the idea of forgiveness. And I, I think what Jesus is getting at is that you can't have true forgiveness without true rebuking and true repentance. And what I mean by that is, uh, to give you an idea of what I mean, is, is it's really, really easy to just avoid confrontation and get over something. It's a really easy thing to do. In some, well, so, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's an incredibly difficult and hard thing. But for many of us, it's often the, the, the perceived easier direction. Avoid confrontation. I don't want to cause a fuss. I don't want to make them be mad at me. I'll just, I'll just get over it. I'll forgive them. And, and maybe, maybe that's a good thing. But how are you helping that person in any way? How are you enabling them to have a stronger relationship with you? How are you enabling them to have a stronger relationship with God? The idea of rebuking here, it's not coming in and elevating yourself above them. There's plenty of scriptures that make it clear, you know, log in your own eye, all those sorts of things. No, it's, it's about this idea of restoration so that they will repent and so that there will be forgiveness. I, I participate in a, uh, a college chat group. Uh, a bunch of my friends, when we left college, we started a, a chat group on our phones. Uh, and it was supposed to be a group where we'd help one another, but it's mostly a group now where we just, um, it's just banter and, and, and mildly uh, lots of joking and mucking around. And the, the thing with those kinds of groups is that sometimes you can get carried away. Uh, and sometimes you can say something uh, that can be pretty uh, hurtful. And I did that one day uh, a while back. I was just thought I was joking around, but I said something that the other person um, took really hurt, hurt, really hurt that person. Uh, and they came to me and they expressed gently that they understood it was a joke, but that it was still upsetting to them. 
There was no sense of you've done the wrong thing or anything like that. It was just an expression of this is how I feel. And it was an opportunity for me to repent, for him to forgive, and to us to be more mindful of how we communicate. Now, I'd love to say that I immediately learnt my lesson and never said anything bad in chat ever again. That's not the case. It takes a long time for us to change. And that's why Jesus, I think, emphasises here the need of repetition in our, our forgiving. And I, I want to clarify here, it's not, a, it's not like the child who says he's sorry and immediately goes and does it because he didn't mean he was sorry. It's talking about the reality of human nature where we do genuinely repent, but we fall into our old habits. We fall into our sinful ways. It's like someone who swears a lot. It's easy to go to them and say, can you please not swear at me? Like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. But if they're used to doing it every moment of every day, it's not going to happen right away. And they're going to need to be rebuked, and they're going to need to repent again and again, and you're going to need to forgive again and again and again. And there's a, there's a sense of irony in the, the world when it looks at this kind of message, because the world says the exact opposite. The world says to you, you don't need to rebuke anyone because everyone is living their truth, and you don't have the right to interfere in their truth. And then at the same time, it says to you, don't worry about forgiveness. Just cut people out of your life who are negative. And what, it's backed themselves into this corner where we can no longer, as, as people, restore ourselves to one another because we have completely cut off any lines or opportunities for us as people to grow. Yet in the kingdom of God, we are told differently. To rebuke to repent, and to forgive. But Jesus' uh, statement here is not an easy one to take. Uh, I don't look at this and go, yeah, that's, that's pretty simple. Let's, let's go out and do, look, do this. I look at this and go, man, that is, that is hard stuff to do. It's, it's hard and difficult to go up to someone and to confront them about your hurt. And it's hard and difficult to forgive people for your hurt. And so the apostles, they recognize this, and they, they come to Jesus, and they, they literally say to him in verse 5, increase our faith. This statement is in, in reflection of this idea of forgiveness. They're like, how on earth can we do this without you giving us, like, we need, like, a whole lot more faith. We haven't got enough. And it's, it's almost like they want more superpowers or something like that. And so Jesus looks at them, and he responds in verse 6. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed... You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Jesus' response seems a bit unusual at first. The, the disciples are asking, we need help to do this, so give us more, more help in the sense of more faith. And Jesus says, all you need is the tiniest bit. Many have used this passage to talk about the, the wondrous things that you should expect from your faith, the marvellous mountains you will move, the, the healing you will bring. And I've, I've sadly heard this used, uh, and then used to uh, hurt people who are told that they don't have enough faith. Your faith isn't enough. You need more faith to do things. You need more faith to do that. Yet Jesus says here, a mustard seed is all that you need. The faith, and the reason why that's significant was that if I was holding a mustard seed right now, you wouldn't be able to tell. So let's, I could literally lie to you all and say I'm holding a mustard seed and none of you would know the wiser because they are tiny, tiny seeds. And the point of Jesus' statement is simple, is that faith is not about quantity, but merely about its presence. It's not about how much you have, but whether you have it or not. To know Jesus to believe that you are saved through the work of the cross, that you are an adopted child of God, forgiven for all that you have done. 
is sufficient to do wondrous and marvellous things, and particularly in the context of forgiveness, to take those steps and forgive. Because in understanding that, in understanding that faith here is being put in the context of rebuking and forgiving, is to know that you yourself were rebuked by God and forgiven by God. And how much easier is it to do that to others when you acknowledge that you yourselves have received that same thing? It's easier when you recognise that that person that's offended you in this church is your brother and sister in Christ and not a stranger that you can cut off from your life. To forgive is to understand that you are forgiven. To rebuke is to understand that others need forgiveness. To repent is to know that you are receiving forgiveness. It is your faith that drives you to this. It is your faith that does wondrous things. And it's not about whether you have lots or little, it's simply about whether you have it. Because if you have it, that's all you need. But then Jesus finishes here in this this section, uh, verse 10, with sort of a quiet rebuke in a way to the disciples and and to the Pharisees and to to the world, really. He says these words from verse 7, he says, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait for me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Uh, it's a confronting parable because the first glance it sounds like Jesus is advocating for uh, almost abusive uh, styles of management. But really he's just describing a realistic relationship between an employer and an employee. When you go to work and you do 45 minutes of work and go to ask your boss for a break, I don't think he's going to want to give you one. Not because he hates you, but because you're there to work. You're there to do a job. And Jesus is is making the point here that our obedience, our acting in faith, our protecting of the word, our acts of forgiveness are the bare minimum that we can do as God's people to love and serve him. That our acts of obedience to God do not obligate God to us in any sort of way. That just because you have lots of faith and you do the right thing and you forgive all the time, it does not make God more gracious to you than to any other in his kingdom. The danger of thinking your faith, your righteousness, your works, your obedience earn you God's favour is that you actually flip the reality of grace on its head and reject the truth of Jesus. That it is he who has done the work, not you. And all that you can do now is the bare minimum. And all that you can do is what is expected of you. None of us can come to the gates of heaven and say, look at my marvellous work. We will come to the gates and even if we've worked our butts off, God will say, you did what I expected of you. Nothing more. That might seem like a bit of a downer, but it's actually a wonderfully freeing notion for us as God's people because what it actually means 
is that the work that needs to be done, the extra work that brings us our rest, that brings us our reward, is done by Jesus Christ. It is brought forth by him. The false teachers of the Pharisees would have you believe that you can work your way into heaven through obedience. The false teachers of the world today would make you believe that your inner truth is all that matters and you don't have to do squat. Or alternatively, that you have to work your butt off in condemning the world, in hating the world to the point of viciousness, so that God will somehow love you more. And yet none of that is what is in Scripture. The Word tells us, the reason why why protecting the Word of God, why Jesus warns the disciples, is because those that would pull us away from the Word of God will pull us away from the truth of salvation in Jesus and the truth of His forgiveness. The bare minimum that we can do is guard ourselves, forgive one another, hold on to our faith. Uh, when I finished my job, uh, decided I wanted to go to uni, I thought it'd be good to have a, a job reference from my boss. So I asked him to write me a letter of, you know, recommendation, not recommendation, it was a hotel cleaning job, so it wasn't like a, I don't know what it was, it was just a reference. Um, and he was a very, very lovely and kind man, and so he wrote me a, a, a reference, and he, very, he found a very cautious way to essentially say that, yeah, he did what I asked him to do. I didn't, and it was truthful, I didn't go above and beyond in my job. I did what was asked, and it was appropriate. And that's what he wrote in my, in my reference. And I think there are many people that are going to come to God, and they're going to come to God with a reference just jam-packed full of things, things that they think are wondrous, that are marvellous, all the things that they've done, and they're going to go to God and they're going to say, look at this, well done, good and faithful servant. And God's going to look at them and say, you didn't even do the bare minimum. You didn't do what was expected. You don't know Jesus. And there will be others that will come with resumes that look bare by comparison and will simply say that I am saved and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God will say, welcome home, good and faithful servant. To do the bare minimum is great. And to know that Jesus has done everything else is amazing. Let us finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when we were far away, you have brought us near through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that through his resurrection we stand assured of our salvation, that we can call you Father and know that we are forgiven. Lord, we pray that you will protect us from the messages of this world that draw us away from that truth, that you will help us to love and care and forgive one another, to hold on to our faith and not not diminish its impact in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to do the bare minimum that we can do in our work here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.